Over the past several weeks, we've been asking several of our ministry leaders to come and to share about uh, the ministries that they have in hopes that maybe if you're not serving in some area of our church that you might find something that you could do, you might find some way that you could plug in to the ministry, to the life of our church. Well, today, I've asked Ms. Charlotte Peterson to come up, and she's going to be sharing some words with us about our Iowa mission team. Um, it's a ministry we've had for several years, which she'll be able to talk to you about. Uh, but Ms. Charlotte, if you don't just begin by just telling us about what is, what's Iowa Missions, what do we do, what does our team do, how long have we been going? Iowa Missions, I know, has been since before 2009, because that was my first year when I went. I'm not sure quite how many years before that, but um, we had, take a team out there every year between probably 35, 40, 45 people. That includes babies and children and everybody, because it is a family mission trip that our church sponsors and and it's probably the only mission program in our church that is totally our church uh, that we do out of the body of uh, this uh, body of believers here at Fisherville. But we go to Iowa, 600 miles exactly from my driveway to the hotel that we stay in. Uh, when we go from our hotel to the little town of Davis City where we serve, it's cornfields. Uh, it's Mormons that you pass going, I mean, you, you see Mormons in that area, but Amish riding their little carts up and down the highway. But then you come into this little town that has a basically nothing. There's no businesses there. There's no schools. There's uh, two churches that are probably maybe about 10 to 15 people. They can't even turn the water on in the Methodist church because they can't afford to pay the water bill there. The houses probably, many of them have not even been painted since the early 40s. It looks like a ghost town almost, but you come in and you, we uh, set up for Bible school. We go um, here on a Saturday, we leave on the bus. Many people do, I drive up separately, but they drive up on the bus and get there on Saturday. Uh, Sunday morning, we go to a church in a neighboring town. We uh, provide the music and the worship service there at that church, and then they provide us with a potluck lunch. And uh, so we've built a relationship with this church in this town. And then off from there, we go to the community center. That's where our vacation Bible school is, in a community center. There's not anything else there. I mean, we could probably use some of the churches, but the community center provides a lot for us. Uh, it's one great big room. We have the Bible study, the crafts, the snacks, the individual Bible time in that great big room and then the little preschool do have their own separate classroom. Um, but also in, in addition to the vacation Bible school that we do there for a week, we have started a women's Bible study that um, Martha Beckett teaches and we do that during the same time that we do the Bible school. Uh, so on Sunday afternoon we decorate. We take a lot of our decorations, all of them, that we need from here to uh, the community center and decorate it. And when those kids come in, they think they're in heaven. They just love seeing all the decorations. Uh, the Bible study for the women goes on at the same time. And uh, so then on Tuesday nights, we started a men's night where our men go down to the community center and cook hamburgers. And that's because the men have to leave. There's no businesses in Davis City. So they leave and we never see them, so we thought, well, if we have a night thing where they can come and eat hamburgers and they hear a devotional, so they hear the gospel one time a week there. And then on Wednesday night, we go to the park. The town has a river, a big river running right beside it, and the park is on the other side of the river. And we cross over that river to have what's called watermelon or worship in watermelon in the park. 
We go down, set up our sound system. We have uh, teams that sing and give testimonies. Even some of the people from the neighboring area have stood up and give, uh, have given their testimony, and they've sung with us. And then we serve them watermelon. And it's a way that we get to interact with all of the community. And that has grown. It has really grown from just a few to many. Uh, Thursday night is family night. That's just like family night here. We set up the community center, the families come in, the kids perform the songs that they've learned. Uh, we have a, a, a worship time where someone presents the gospel to the local community. That has grown, and uh, so we, we're very excited about that each year. And then on Friday, we finish up, pack up, and the bus drives home all night long, and uh, that's a busy, busy week. And then on, in, on top of that, the women are basically doing the Bible study, our vacation Bible school and the, and the women's Bible study, but our men are out in the community doing projects. They have done so many things for the people there. Uh, the, I just have to give one example. There was a lady that lost her husband, and she had been trying for years to get this bench installed in a little fire pit at the park that had his name on it, and she couldn't find anyone to do that, and somebody just called. I tend to have contacts out there that I talked to, and they installed that bench for her in that fire pit, and that lady came down, <laughs> made me cry, but she stood there and cried over just having this bench put in, in the park for her husband. So there's just so many things our men do that we don't even know about because they're out in the community serving while we're doing Bible school. Tell us too, how, how have you seen God move? I've seen God in many ways since I started there uh, in 2009, we did not have a teenage class. Uh, the first time I went, I was in recreation, and I looked in the fifth and sixth grade, and there was a, a pregnant teenager sitting there in the fifth and sixth grade class. And I thought, Lord, this, we don't need this. These fifth and sixth graders are, need, don't need to see this and don't need to be a part. And this teenager needs a stronger lesson than just... Uh, God so loved the world. I mean, they need that, but they need to know. And so we started a teenage class, and the first year, I had seven boys that I taught. And I said, Lord, you got a sense of humor to put me with seven boys. But thank goodness, I know all about sports. I can talk with any guy. I can fish. I can so And, and uh, God provided materials that year that was rodeo. And these kids love rodeo. They have horses. Uh, I've seen God provide um, the right people uh, to go on this trip each year. Last year, we had no one to work in the kitchen. Uh, our person had left, and all of a sudden, God provided the Bennett family, and Leslie Bennett walked into that kitchen having no idea what it was like, and through phone calls with me all through the week, Miss Charlotte, how do I do this? What do I do with that? It worked out. I didn't get to go last year. I was sick, and then um, I've seen God provide salvation. We haven't had a lot, but we have had salvation, but I'll tell you one other thing. Um, we've started some small group learning how to use the Bible, uh, learning about the Bible once we have Bible, uh, our big Bible study. And we had a little girl say after she was in the class uh, when, um, what's Keeling's first? Tom. When Tom Keeling would go, he would always teach the children John 3.16, always. And uh, after that first year of doing the small group Bible study, uh, this little girl stood up and she goes, my goodness, that's where John 3.16 comes from. She had no idea that that was in the Bible and that it was a book in the Bible and that it was a verse or chapter. 
So I've seen kids grow. I've seen the relationships with the adults grow. When we first went, they were like, whoa, who are you people coming in here to do this? And now they love us. We keep up a relationship through the year. Facebook has its many downfalls, but it also has its many good things because we've been able to communicate with these people throughout the years. And um, one other thing I've seen is last year we had our college girl that I started working with when she was probably in sixth grade, seventh grade. She's off to college now. These college kids come back to our teenage class. They don't want to leave us. They love us. We love them. We stay in touch. But she left last year driving home. She said, why do we have to wait another year for them to come back? I could do a Bible study. She started a Bible study for the girls there, and we were able to provide materials for her to use to teach this Bible study to the girls. So I see her growing in the Lord, and I see these girls growing because they want to be a part of a Bible study, not just one week. Folks, this is one week out of the year these children hear about Jesus. No other time do they hear, you know, and they come running. I mean, it literally looks like they're just running to the community center to be there every year, and it's a blessing. It's a real blessing. Thank you. And if someone wants to get involved, what do they need to do? Well, I think, did you hear? I forgot. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, John Proctor, he goes each year, and his number you'll be able to get through the office. You're welcome to contact me anytime. We have, like I said, about 40, 45 people going this year on the trip. We have all kinds of jobs, and it is a family trip, so you can be very comfortable. Take a week of vacation, you'll be blessed. Um, we do pay our own expenses. The church pays for all the work stuff we do and things, but uh, we each pay our own expenses, and it's a, it's a week that I look forward to every year, and I, whatever it costs, whatever I'll, I'm going till the Lord puts me six feet under. So, okay, thank you. Amen, thank you. If you are interested in that, you can, you can either see Charlotte after the service, you can see John Proctor, our children's minister, um, or you can take one of those cards out of the chair back in front of you, just put on there, I'm interested in Iowa missions, drop it in the offering plate. Uh, we could use men to go help with construction projects, families to go help with vacation Bible school. I know there's a lot of prep work beforehand. There's always donations that are needed. And so if you are interested in getting involved in any way, maybe you can't go on the trip, but you'd still like to help out in some way, See Charlotte. I'm sure she can find a way for you to get plugged in. I want us to pray right now specifically for that trip. Let's pray. Father God, oh, how I thank you for bringing Iowa missions into our life, into our church's life, uh, many years ago through a children's minister named Wendy Truitt. And God, how you led her to start this trip and how that trip has continued and how we have seen the fruit of, of your labor through your people. Father, we pray for the trip this year that you would provide um, the individuals to go and to serve, that you would provide the materials, um, the equipment, that you would protect that team as they travel and as they do their work. God, that I pray that the harvest would be plentiful and that the workers would be plentiful as well, ready to see people receive the gospel. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 9 today. Last week, uh, we looked at four keys to an effective prayer life. We talked about the necessity of prayer. Uh, we talked about the audience of prayer, that when we pray, we pray to our Heavenly Father, not to a God who is distant, but to a God who is caring. He's our Father. We talked about the mechanics of prayer last week, that, that our prayers don't have to be complicated, uh, that it's a simple, meaningful conversation with our Heavenly Father. And we talked about the goal of prayer last week, 
Uh, that, that the goal isn't necessarily just to get our, our, our wants met. The goal is to be with our Lord, to speak, to be in communion with our Heavenly Father. Now, as we, as we move to the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begin, he continues on the topic of prayer, and we're going to be on this, this section for a couple weeks here. Um, but he moves beyond just how to pray to, to more of what to pray. And he gives us here... Uh, what we commonly call today the Lord's Prayer. Uh, now, I'm guessing that for many of you in this room today, uh, the Lord's Prayer holds a very dear place in your heart. I'm guessing that many of you have this memorized and probably memorized it as a small child. You probably memorized it in the King James Version. I'm just taking a guess. And I'm guessing that if I started reciting it right now, many of you could join in. So let's just try that out. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debt as we... I'm messing it up. Look at me. What am I doing? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's the problem when you got a preacher who doesn't use the King James anymore, but, you know. That, that prayer right there consists of eight petitions, really, eight requests, and it really could be divided into two halves. The first two verses, verse 9 and 10, really focus on God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Second half, verse 11 through 13, focuses on our situation. We pray for our daily bread, our forgiveness, deliverance from temptation, deliverance from, from the evil one. And so today we're really going to focus on that first half, just verses 9 and 10, and next week we'll get to verses 11 and 12. But before we even get into those petitions, I want us to think about this prayer as a whole. Uh, Just to read it again, look in verse 9. It says, Pray then like this, Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, like I mentioned, many of you probably recite this prayer quite often. Uh, for memory, and that's really not a bad idea at all. It's, it's really a good thing to do. Um, but we need, do need to remember this. Jesus' ultimate in, intention wasn't to give us a word-for-word prayer that we must recite on a daily basis. Instead, what Jesus was trying to do is he was trying to teach us a model for prayer. He was trying to tell us what is important that we ought to be praying about. You remember last week we talked about how Jesus warned us against heaping up empty words in our prayer life, right? Just saying things to say things. And anytime we repeat any prayer without really thinking about it, without really considering what we are doing, then what are we doing in a sense? Heaping up empty phrases. And so Jesus was after a model here. That's why he says in verse 9, he says, pray then like this. Pray in this manner. Pray in this way. Pray for these types of things. You know, over in Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches his disciples a slightly shorter version of this same prayer. Um, And he does so because he was asked this question. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it's going to be on the screen. It says this, now Jesus was praying... In a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so the disciples had watched Jesus' prayer life. They had seen the power that he had when he prayed. They had seen how things had taken place, how people had been healed. And they said to him, Jesus, we want to pray like you. 
We hear what you're saying when, when you say uh, that we need to you know, not heap up empty phrases, that we need to not pray to a, a, an audience of men, but an audience of God. But, but Jesus, what do we do next? And I believe Jesus' goal was to teach his disciples what heartfelt prayer really was. What, where should our hearts be? And so can we pray this prayer as is? Absolutely. As long as your heart and your mind are there with it. As long as you're not simply doing so out of repetition with little thought. But must we pray this word for word? I don't think so. Instead, we need to remember that this is a model. And models are wonderful. They teach us what's important. They help us to grasp concepts so then we can know what to do. It's sort of like when you were a kid and you had to learn multiplication tables. You know, 2 plus 2 is 4, 2 plus 3 is 6. And you went through it and went through it and went through it until what happened? Until you just knew it, right? Until that concept of multiplication was just in your heart and in your mind. And now as an adult, whenever you have to do any kind of multiplication, you don't sit there and run through the whole multiplication table, do you? No. It's just a part of you. It just comes out. And so when we sit down to pray and we don't know what to pray, you know what we ought to do? Come back to the model and just pray this prayer as is if we don't know where to go. But even when our hearts are full of things to pray about, don't discard the model because Jesus is giving us priorities here. He, he's telling us where to begin and where to focus in our prayer life. Whether we use these exact words or not, the intent is that we ought to follow the model. He starts in verse 9. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Now, we talked about this last week, but I'll talk about it again. Jesus is telling us here that we have the privilege, we have the right uh, to, to call out to this God of heaven, not simply as some distant God, but as our heavenly Father. This is a privilege that we pray to our heavenly Father. I mean, just think for a minute what's in a name. Take my name, for instance, Jeff. If a stranger were to walk up to me at Walmart or somewhere like wherever out in public, and they wanted to get my attention, um, they, they didn't know me, they probably would say, Hey, mister, hey, you. Hey, man, hey, guy, hey, tall, tall man, whatever. And they, they don't know me. Those are all kind of distant titles. They're, they're things that you call out to someone when you don't know who they are. Now, if you knew me, but you didn't really know me well, and you knew that I worked at a church, and you knew that I was a pastor, you might say, well, hey, Pastor Jeff, hey, Brother Jeff. Um, if you're close with me and you've known me for a long time, it's likely that you just call me Jeff because it's personal. It's a personal relationship. It's, it's first name basis. But let me tell you, I have two boys that run around my house. And you know what they call me? Dad. Dad. Because it is a privileged position. They have a right to call me dad because of our relationship. And though they're not my children by birth, they have the right to call me so because they are my adopted sons. Well, Scripture tells us, it reminds us that by Christ's own blood, we have the privilege to call out to the God of heaven as our heavenly Father because we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. And let me say this, not everyone has that privilege. Not everyone has that right. You know, sometimes we hear these generic comments about how we're all God's children and everybody in the world is God's children. But let me tell you, according to Scripture, that's not true. It's not true at all. In fact, Scripture tells us that the lost man or woman isn't the child of God. They're the enemy of God. Satan, or Jesus even goes so far as to call them the sons of the evil one. 
the sons of the devil. But yet, yes, I know God created every person, but the reality is, is that only those who come to faith in Christ are his children and have the right to call God their father. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So as Christians, we are not enemies of God. In fact, we are friends of God. And I would go even one further. We are the children of God. And let me tell you, that title unlocks the privilege of prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think about this too. Um, Notice the pronouns in the first half of that prayer. We, We see our Father. Your name, your kingdom, your will. There's a whole lot of yours in there, isn't there? I believe Jesus' desire, Jesus' model in this prayer was to teach us that when we come to the Lord in prayer, we shouldn't begin with our wants. Instead, we should begin with the Lord and what He wants. With His name, with His kingdom, with His will. But is that where our prayer life often begins? When we come to the Lord in prayer, what's our typical habit? I know where I typically fall to. I typically begin to my prayers with, Lord, I need blank. Lord, I need you to do blank. And I believe oftentimes we, we are honestly, genuinely burdened by some situation, um, but we, in, that, in that burden, we, we're tempted just to rush right to our needs and rush right beyond ever pausing to consider, who is this God that we're praying to? And what does he desire? It's sort of like if you're a parent, if you've ever had one of those times wherever you walk in the door after a long day of work and your kids come running up to you, instead of saying, hey, Dad, I love you, they say, hey, Dad, can I have 20 bucks? Hey, Dad, can I borrow the keys to the car? Hey, Dad, can I have this? And you start to think to yourself, I'm just an ATM here to provide for their wants, right? And they never really care to see their dad or their mom. I wonder if that's how we come across to God sometimes. When every time we come in prayer, if every time we do so, we start with what we want instead of what the Lord wants. I feel like the point is clear here that before we ever turn to our wants, our needs, our desires, desires, no matter how genuine, no matter how heartfelt, I believe we ought to start in our prayer by pausing in worship and considering what God wants, what our Heavenly Father wants desires. And so let's think for a moment about these three petitions that he makes, that Jesus makes in the first half. He says, first of all, he says, hallowed be your name. And I believe he's telling us to pray for God's name to be lifted high. Now, we often would think about that phrase, hallowed be your name, as a moment of praise. Uh, And it's a call that when we begin our prayers that we ought to begin with praise. God, you are great. God, you are majestic. You are mighty. Think about all that you've created. Oh my goodness, God, you are so amazing. And yes, that is true, that when we begin our time in prayer, we ought to begin with praise. But I don't think that's all that that phrase means. I believe with Jesus, whenever he was telling us to pray um, for hallowed be your name, I believe he was telling us, I I believe what that phrase means is this, is God, make your name honored as holy. God, lift your name high. And that's more than just praise. I believe that's that's a request. 
And I think it takes place in two ways. God, God, God's name is honored as holy, really, in two ways. First, when we pray, asking God to put his holiness on display, we are really asking God to so move and to so act in this world that people would know that he is real. The people would know that he is there. And so I believe that that means that when we pray, we ought to be praying, God, point people to you. God, make your presence known in this person's life. God, allow them to see your glory. Allow them to see your love. Allow them to see your compassion. But let me tell you this too. I think that when we pray for God's name to be honored as holy, we're also laying ourselves on the altar and saying, God, use me to show your name to be holy. Because what's one of the, the, the main ways that God's greatness is de demonstrated in this world? Through the faithfulness of his people. Through the body of Christ. God's glory is directly reflected in the lives of his people. And when we make much of Jesus with our lives, the world sees God's greatness. And so when we pray for God's name to be lifted high... I believe we're laying ourselves at God's feet. This is a moment of praise as well as a moment of surrender. Second thing Jesus tells us to pray for here is God's kingdom. He prays for God's kingdom to come. Your kingdom come. Now, what is, what is God's kingdom? One definition I read this week was that God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. I thought that's a pretty good summary right there. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Now, we might think of God's kingdom as being heaven, right? We might think of it as futuristic, as that time when Jesus is going to come back. But Jesus also said, he taught us when he was here on earth in his earthly ministry, that the kingdom of God had come. And so, in a sense, God's kingdom is already, but yet not yet. It's been inaugurated, but yet not consummated. God's kingdom is alive and well in his people, in the church, in the body of Christ. Um, and it, it may seem invisible even. It may seem non-existent to the lost. I mean, we don't have a flag that we fly necessarily. We don't have a country that we rule over. God's kingdom here and now is spiritual. Yet there will come a day when Jesus is going to break through the clouds and God's kingdom is going to come to this earth. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to come, I think we're really praying, once again, two things. I think we're praying that God would grow his kingdom here on earth. That God's kingdom would come here to earth as it is in heaven. And I think this is evangelistic. I think that when we pray, um, that, that often, quite often when we pray, we ought to be calling out the names of lost people that we love and that we care for and saying, God, save this person. Expand your kingdom. Bring people into your kingdom. Allow people to see and understand and experience your love and your compassion, God. We ought to be praying that the, that the fields would be ripe for the harvest and that we and others would be the workers in the fields. But also, too, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, I think that we ought to sound a little bit like John at the end of Revelation in praying, Come, Lord Jesus that our prayer life ought to often turn toward the second coming and asking the Lord to please come. You know, I find myself praying this particular prayer, this particular emphasis uh, quite a bit when we go through difficult seasons at the church, um, when we see the prayer list begin to grow and grow and grow and we have 
you know, people begin to experience sickness. And, and uh, I just get sick and tired of sin and evil and the pain that comes with it. And my heart gets burdened and I begin to cry out to the Lord, come Lord Jesus. God, we're just exhausted. We're weary. We don't want this anymore. Father, we want to be with you. So come, Lord Jesus. And so do you want to see Jesus return? I know I do. And if we do, we ought to be praying for it. And then lastly, Jesus here said to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we ought to be praying for God's will to be done. Now, when we look in Scripture and we speak of God's will, we can really think of it in two ways. I think there's two aspects to God's will. There's, first of all, there's God's sovereign or sometimes would be called permissive will. And basically what that means is that, that what God allows to happen. Everything that's taken place on this earth has taken place because God allowed it to happen. He, he permitted it to take place. But then on the other side of it, there's also God's revealed will or His perfect will. It's what God desires, what God wants, His commands, His wishes, what He expects from us. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, that when Jesus is praying, Father, Your will be done, He's praying that we as the church would live according to God's perfect will. That we would pray, God, reshape hearts, reshape minds, that people would follow you, change lives. And that this is also personal as well, that we lay ourselves down at God's feet and say, God, reshape my heart, reshape my desires, reshape my thoughts, my words, my actions, that what I do and what my will is would match your will. God, bend my will to match yours and not the opposite. Now, Jesus said here also, too, he said, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in reality, that phrase right there applies to all three of those things. God, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But let's just think about those three requests for just a moment. I mean, God, put your name on display as holy in my life and in this world. God, bring your kingdom to this world and expand it by allowing others to come to know Christ. God, may I forsake my will so that I could follow your will. Let me ask you, what if we as a church really prayed that every day? What if Christians around this world really began to give ourselves to that prayer? Really began to commit our hearts and our lives to that prayer, but not just prayed it, but then also lived it. I, I tell you what would happen. It would change everything. One of the books I've been reading is by one of our seminary guys with Southern Baptist Life, and it, he titled this book about the Lord's Prayer, The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down. And I think that's an accurate title. That if the body of Christ really prayed this prayer genuinely, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, it would be absolutely revolutionary. It would change our personal lives. It would change our homes. It would change our neighborhoods, our workplaces, every single place that we have influence. And I believe if the church as a whole, if Christianity genuinely set out to not only pray that, but also to live this, I believe it would change the world too. 
I believe it would flip this entire world upside down. If we did commit ourselves to live in such a way that God's name was lifted high, if we did work to expand his kingdom every single day, praying for souls to be saved and then going out and trying to find them, if we genuinely sought God's will in every situation and said, not my will, God, but your will be done, if we genuinely lived like that, what could that do? It would change everything. I mean, the entire first half of this prayer, I believe, could be summed up simply by this phrase, God, I'm yours. Take me. Do with me as you wish. It's not my name. It's yours, God. It's not my kingdom. It's yours, God. It's not my will. It's yours, God. And let me tell you, that's a difficult prayer to pray because we want it to be about our name. We want it to be about our will. We want it to be about our kingdom. Sometimes I pause and I think about my prayer life and I wonder how much of what I just prayed is more about my name, my kingdom, and my will than God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And so Jesus is telling, he's reminding us here that when we begin in prayer, we are laying ourselves at God's feet and saying, God, everything else that comes from me, is, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. All that matters is you. I think about Romans chapter 12 Verse 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. If we followed this prayer every day, I think we would be reminding ourselves of that verse, that I'm laying myself, God, at your feet, on, on your altar. I'm a living sacrifice. Do with me what you wish. But you know what the problem is with a living sacrifice? It likes to get up and move. Likes to run away. Likes to go back into its own little den and do its own little thing. And so sometimes I believe we can be guilty of praying these things with our mouths, but never really meaning it in our hearts. And that's why every day I believe that when we come to the Lord in prayer, we have to begin here just as Jesus began, saying, God, it's not my life. It's yours. It's not my name. It's yours. It's not my kingdom. It's not my will. Yours. Would you pray with me? Father God, how your word has pierced my heart this week as I thought and prayed through this passage and asked myself just how much I am following the model. And I have to confess I haven't. So often my prayers have focused on my kingdom and my will and my name and the things I've asked for have not been for your sake but for mine and so Father I confess that and I, and I repent and I, and I ask you to, to, to help me to pray properly and God I, I lift up every person in this room today who is a believer in Jesus Christ I pray that you would help them to examine their hearts and to ask themselves are they praying for your kingdom for your name and for your will rather than their own Father, lay our hearts open and do a work in us and help us to see where we fall short that we might confess and return to faithfulness. Father God, if there be someone in this room today who needs to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, someone who desires that privilege to call you their Heavenly Father, to become a child of God, I pray that today would be that day that they would recognize their sin they would understand that Jesus is the solution for their sin, that he offers forgiveness 
through his death, burial, and resurrection. And if they would confess their sin and ask Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, that, that God, you would forgive them. I pray that there would be someone who needs to make that decision, that they would walk this aisle. I want to know more about Jesus. And Father, I pray if there's someone else in this room, a, a Christian who's been searching for a church home and says, this is it. This is my home. This is where I want to be. They want to join this church that you would just move them to step out of the aisle. If there, if there be others who need to make decisions of rededication to confess sin, God, I pray that they would know that the altar is open and that they're more than welcome to come and spend time in prayer at the altar, laying their lives before you. It's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?